Hello, and welcome back to Lambda Forms Radio. My name is Ian Corey. I am the singer and songwriter in the band Lambda Forms. This is a podcast that I use to talk to other musicians and artists about their process, their intentions behind their work, and who they are as people. Uh, two weeks ago, as the time of this release, the band that I play drums in, Bellows, an indie rock project based in Brooklyn, New York, dropped two new music videos, one of which was directed by previous Lamb Forms radio guest Felix Walworth. The other, for the song McNally Jackson, was directed by Daniel Ott, a friend of mine from college. The two of us briefly played together in the band Sharpless while living in Chicago, and we've stayed in contact since after Dan moved to Los Angeles to become part of the film industry. Uh, it was great working with Dan on this particular music video, and I figured that it was a good occasion to have him on the podcast to talk about script writing, to talk about the collaborative process involved in making both music videos and film, uh, his upcoming short film Apartment Story, as well as the music video for McNally Jackson, of course. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was great having Dan on. So just before we started rolling, you were mentioning your work schedule during COVID and working from home and whatnot. So I, yeah, how has the last year and a half, year and three quarters been for you? You, you know, you were one of the last people that I hung out in person before yeah. the, it all came closing down. On us, Maybe so. an unintentional super spreader event. Um, yeah, COVID was weird. I got, as you know, I got married and then two weeks later we went into lockdown. Like I didn't know, which is my own ignorance. I didn't know the word COVID. And then all I knew was that. Right. So it was, you know, first it was like this, oh, it's going to be a few weeks and we're going to work from home and is what it is. And then, uh, it became like my job, my old, uh, my old production company, like laid off everyone and, uh, then it was just kind of weird. So there's like this weird spiral. And then there was just no clear indicator like, oh, it'll be, you know, summer. Oh, actually, we have no idea. And then it was just mm-hmm. sort of this endless like, I don't know what it is. And at first we were like, wow, we have Animal Crossing. We have, I'm going to catch up on video games and movies and just felt like that. And then I just didn't know. I became really aimless. I was like, well, I can't, you can't really go anywhere. You can't go anywhere. Like we're in major cities. You're not, you're not allowed to go anywhere at that time. So it just felt weirdly constricting and... Uh, is very like it kind of was like a sabotage on mental health, and you didn't realize mm-hmm. it. I felt sometimes you just sort of woke up and went to bed. It? Yeah, you just sort of woke up and went to bed at the same level of just like indifference after a while. Mm. And I think the only person that benefited was my dog. She loved it, but then even her, as we've sort of come out of, I mean, we're still in pandemic, but as we've had to sort of roll out back into life. Like she has separation anxiety and regular anxiety, which I didn't know dogs could be cursed with. So the repercussions have been, you know, unanimous. It's it's interesting. Uh huh. Did you find that you were able to be creative during this last stretch, or did that become like a struggle for you? Because I feel like I've talked to people that have been on either side of that split. At first, no. At uh, well, at first a little bit, and then for a while, no. And then Mm. I started sort of. I was doing a lot of reading and I sort of realized with the way my brain works, a regimented schedule is really helpful. So I started to plan out, okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make some tea. I'm going to go on a walk with the dog and listen to music. And then, then I'll check in. I try not to check my phone in the mornings just so I could sort of mm. decompress. Not that there was anything to check at the time <laughs> and then schedule some time for writing. 
Uh, and I was joining a lot of like screenwriting competitions just because they were and, and writing groups because it was some type of accountability and deadline, which I think I worked really well with. Mm-hmm. Just any sort of indicator of like there is here's a thing you have to have done by a time, which in a in a in a this endless moment of there is no in there is no timeline of anything. It felt really nice to have like these little stretches of time and then trying to find sort of scattered uh, side work, which didn't really exist in film and television. We sort of just shut down. So it was weird. It felt really aimless. It took me a while. And then sort of as I kind of got my bearings later in 2020, like fallish, maybe I started to get a routine down that let me be creative. And I've tried to maintain that because I actually thought it was pretty valuable. Mm-hmm. So what did you start? writing screenplays first is that the way that you got into making movies in general or is that kind of just where you've ended up as part of your daily practice like how did you get started on this path um when i was young and then i mean i got into filmmaking as a as a kid before the double Mm -hmm. digits um mostly making stuff with friends or with my with my little brother and it was always expansions of stuff that existed. So I would watch, I was obsessed with Star Wars. I was obsessed with anime and I was obsessed with all these things that had bigger worlds kind of tied to them. And so I'd yeah. make content that was expansions of that. So if I thought a character was cool, like, you know, Boba Fett, someone interesting that has little screen time and I'd sort of like make a thing about them. Like, what are they doing while the, the heroes are doing this? Mm-hmm. And that was so sort of fan my fiction, basically. Yeah, fan, video fan fiction. Uh-huh. And then it just kind of became a thing that I I got really into DVDs. I was already really into movies, but DVDs were huge because suddenly I didn't know like I didn't know what film school or anything of that concept was. So DVDs became this thing where I was like, oh, you can like watch how people make things. Ah, so and like then the I was like, oh, you can, and stuff like yeah. That. And yeah. I was like, you can you could kind of do this. Like this is not an unattainable thing. Like equipment wise, sure. But so then I started doing it that way, and then. Right around like I was, you know, fifteen or sixteen when I think we were, I think we were around fifth, around the same age, so around like fifteen when YouTube started to become a thing. Sure. So all of a yeah. sudden, like online things, people were starting to show you how to do stuff online. Like, oh, here's how you use these editing programs. Here's how you use special effects, and just sort of spiraled from there. And I'd always written my stuff because I thought I had to. I didn't know any different, and kind of did it as a side thing. And then in college, I had a, a teacher that for a class I had to take who was very adamant. He was kind of a mentor and was very adamant that I should be pursuing that on top of it. Cause he thought that sounds egotistical, but he thought I had a, a voice that was worth focusing in that direction. And so I kind of went mm-hmm. from there and have done it ever since. So how did you first, you know, you mentioned that you were in your single digits when you mm-hmm. first started making stuff like the family had like a camera around. How did you, how were yeah, you we, it? we had, um, it was one of those, it was like a, I forgot the actual type. It was like a, it was like these tiny VCR tapes or uh, VHS tapes and mm. those would go on the camera and then you would put the tiny one into a full VHS tape to play it. And what I would do is we had two VCRs in two separate bedrooms and I would bring one into the other one. And someone had taught me this, that I could record, I could play one off the top VCR while recording on the second one and I could make edits on the second tape. Oh, interesting. So wow. I would sort of make things with these terrible edits that there was no consistency of timing because you just have to guess like you stop. And I don't know if you remember old VCRs, but they would take a minute to stop. So you'd press sure. stop and it would sort of like and like scroll, scrub forward or backward. So it was very scattered. And then my uncle is a, is a, works in software and computers and he got us sort of our first computer that had any sort of beef for gaming and video editing and Windows Movie Maker was on it. 
And for some reason in Oklahoma, my school had a video broadcast class and they taught you how to edit on Macs. So mm-hmm. there was, I had all of a sudden was having this education of stuff that made this thing that took a long time a little more real. And then so I just became obsessive with it and had was fortunate enough to have the resources at school and uh, kind of at home to, to make this stuff. When did you start having like a serious practice towards it? Because I feel like coming from a musician's perspective, mm-hmm. um, it's much easier to kind of break down like how to learn drums into like doing drills and like practicing to a metronome. But I, I've always been impressed with stuff like writing and filmmaking where there's no like drills to be done. You know, there's no like practice book that you can buy that like yeah. hones your technique. Like you actually kind of have to do it to get good at it at all. So how did you find, uh, when did you start getting like serious about like improving yourself along those, along those lines? I can't think of like an exact moment uh, that I sort of realized I was doing it. I remember embarrassingly when I was, um, I must've been 12 or 13. There was a video shop, uh, like a, not a blockbuster, like a family owned shop connected to this local grocery store, grocery store chain in Oklahoma. And I would ride my bike there to rent stuff. And I remember I made a PowerPoint presentation for my parents to be like, I need to be able to watch rated R movies because I want to make movies and I need to be able Mm -hmm. to see them all. And it was sort of this in my brain that made sense partially because I wanted to see whatever I wanted to see and other part because of that. Right. It's a good way to justify it. (laughs) Yeah. And and my mom took me to uh, my mom drove me there and she was like, Hey, if he comes in, as long as it's not something incredibly inappropriate, if he wants to rent it, he has our permission to do it. And the lady was like, okay, and so I'd mm-hmm. rent stuff, and that was sort of my introduction, especially to international stuff, because it was a lot of a lot of imported stuff at the time would just get flagged with either no ratings, which confused my parents because that meant bad, uh, and or like an R because it had fighting in it. Mm-hmm. And so it was around that time when I was like, st- I started to like try to understand what made a movie, like beyond just clipping stuff together. I was like, why do I like these? But I'm also you know 13, 14, so I'd have no real concept of that. I think it's just subconscious. Mm-hmm. And so I guess. Somewhere around that time and with YouTube, I started to get the concept of like, oh, there's schools for this. Like this can be a thing you can do and get paid for. And that's when I started to make it like, oh, that's what I want to do. Like that, that ticks the the marks off. Uh, Because it was sort of an amalgamation of I want to do so many things I can't. But in a movie, you could, you know, you can't be I can't necessarily be an astronaut, but I can make a space Mm -hmm. movie. I can't necessarily (laughs) do this. I can do this. So I always thought that was sort of like everything I want to do, I can just make in fantasy world. Mm hmm. Do you have like, did you notice your tastes changing when you started to pick up a bit more of that analytical and uh, uh, like dissective eye? Uh, Or did you just apply it to stuff that you already liked and it turned out it still was like held up under the microscope? I think before, before I went to school, I, which has not changed. I was an avid, I would just buy every DVD that was on sale. Mm-hmm. I could rent stuff, but if I owned it at the time, you know, if you rented, if uh, at that time DVDs would have like two discs. So one was the movie, one was special features. And usually the local places did not give you uh, the special features disc. So places like Best Buy and Circuit City would have sales for, um, uh, for things where it was like, you know, here's a rack of DVDs. They're $3 each. And I would just buy them all. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really care. The taste was just take everything in. And then as I got sort of serious about the concept of school, I had like this panic where I was like, oh, I need to know all of the like the big ones. And so before I went moved to Chicago and went to school, I 
went through like I, th- I think it was the the BFI or the IMDb top like 150 or 250 and just panic watched. So I was like, every kid is going to have this incredible access. They've been making movies since they were two. And I need to know these things because I'm going to get quizzed and grilled. Uh-huh. And so I, I don't know if like a t- if there was a taste shift because I still love the stuff that I love. But there was also a panic of like what what is great filmmaking, mm-hmm. which I think sort of skews us when we're when we're young in filmmaking. There's this concept of like critically what is great. And it confuses you because you you kind of lose your own voice in the favor of like well this is what you need to make versus like this is what i want to make so i don't i don't think i had a, a shift in taste more of like a panic of like well i need to i need to make great stuff that sort of mm-hmm. lasted a hot minute right so you had to sort of confront what greatness meant in other people's eyes and then yeah take what you could from it and yeah did you find yourself like i feel like sometimes taste is defined in the negative in some ways like you see what other people like and you're like ah oh, that's not my thing or yeah you kind well, of like it. sharpen towards your your personal style over time yeah in, in oklahoma there i none of my friends were uh few of my friends i don't think any re- were really doing f- filmmaking and i put in air quotes seriously um so there wasn't competition it was just us making stuff and having a good time so i never felt this there was no drive of competition. It was always about collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't that competition sort of mindset that I felt till I got to film school. But even then, I think it pretty quickly, in the people you hang out with, you, I very quickly divided myself from sort of, not people with different tastes, because the different tastes were just opening me up to all these new things, but sort of this idea of taste defining you um, technically or being an end-all beyond just a personal thing. Mm-hmm. I think I sort of mm-hmm. formed our friends, which sort of fits into like how we, how you and I met where I wanted to surround myself with people that were equally as passionate about this thing and didn't seem their taste was a personal definition versus something that equated to their greatness. Cause that was a concept that I couldn't wrap my head around. Cause I just, I liked all these things that were being called bad, but I also <laughs> liked all these things that were um, the consensus was they were the best. And I didn't know how to like gauge that except to be like, well, let's talk about it all. Sure. So just, uh, just to, kind of put some names on the board in case people don't quite know what we're talking about. Like what was the stuff that, uh, for example, was being defined as bad that you liked more than its reputation? Well, there's stuff, I guess if you, if I, if I think back to like college freshman, freshman um, sort of essential, or the classes you had to take, everyone sort of takes uh, at Columbia and Chicago where we went. And there's sort of this thing where like the, one of the first projects is you sort of pitch, like we had to do these homage films and Mm-hmm. people you know there's a lot of there was like let me re, let me restart that there was this weird subsection where a lot of people like tarantino tarantino was like this new thing people were discovering before and in freshman year of college but mm-hmm. people who sort of were on who had kind of read things were like actually he's bad and he's like the basic he's like freshman he's he's, he's your basic filmmaker and so now those people were like super self-conscious because this thing that they loved that it maybe brought them here was now being off guard. And I remember we had a, this huge subsection of class um, that was obsessed with Tim Burton and other kids were like, well, you only like Tim Burton because of his aesthetics. You don't understand him as a filmmaker because he's, he's, he was sort of making it big. I think he was, he had just done Alice in Wonderland and they're like, well, see, he just does movies for the masses now. And there was definitely like a turning point where it kind of felt like he was making stuff that was like too easy even yeah, for him, it was like cashing in to some degree, and it was people like you're, you know, you're trying to figure out your taste. So you're, 
you don't know. You're trying to define your taste and you really can't yet. And so people were telling you that this thing, these things that you love are objectively bad. And it was this very weird, like, I don't know. So this, this stuff, for me, it was less of the stuff like, you know, Star. I was a big Star Wars fan and was I would be vocal about it. And they'd be like, oh, well, Star Wars is pretty childish. And that's not really filmmaking. That's, you know, that's a blockbuster. And then, of course, you do some studying down the line. You're like, oh, no, you know, Star Wars was that was changed everything. That was its own thing. So it's kind of stuff like that where it was like this weird. I don't know. Everyone. I don't want to blame the people that were doing it because I think they were equally as, as self-conscious trying to define themselves and the way that they expressed that was in putting down everything you liked. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is definitely the case with like music fandom growing up is you go through like a cycle of getting into say, let's just pull uh, an example out of a hat Lincoln park uh-huh. at like age 13. And then by age like 16, you're like convinced that Lincoln park is the worst thing in the universe Yeah, because you sucks. personally have moved on to something else Yeah, you know, and you expect the rest of the world to be kind of moving in sync with you. And then, you know, I think for some people you eventually flip back to being like, actually yeah. that stuff that I liked 10 years ago is good. Yeah. You know, and that's I the best feeling in the world, honestly. It. Uh-huh. The reappraisal of things you loved you're, that you still love, I think is like the most beautiful moment of like adulthood when you're mm-hmm. like, oh my gosh, this actually is the greatest thing that I, that, I think that's well spoken. It's very, it's very bizarre the way we're sort of pitted against ourselves in that regard. Mm-hmm. How did you find film school coming to it? Like, did you, did you feel like you were taking away useful information? Like what was your experience coming from? Like, as you described it, a place where you didn't necessarily have a bunch of people that were making the same kind of art around you and to a place where that was like everyone that you were surrounded with to some degree. Yeah. The film school, the film school uh, question I get asked a lot by young students uh, who were mm-hmm. considering things. And I think for me, um, access has changed, but at the time uh, Tulsa had Tulsa has a, a film community and I wasn't super involved in it. I didn't really know it existed. I think the internet sort of brought out a, a, a method of connection that wasn't quite there. Cause this is 2008 ish mm-hmm. uh, as I'm like looking at colleges. And so film school seemed like the only way to sort of do things. And I, I, I went to go visit, I went to um, uh, New York and Boston and LA and Chicago to look at schools and get an idea and uh, make an attempt to assess cost and I sort of was like, okay, the film industry, the way I understand it and my limited knowledge at the time was it's LA or it's New York. So mm-hmm. I'll pick a middle ground city to sort of upgrade to. There's a direct flight home if I need it. And it just seemed like an exciting thing. Like, oh, I'll live here and then I'll live somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was Chicago. And the film school experience I thought was super valuable to me. I mean, a lot of it's technical stuff which I think you can learn a lot of that online today. And most of it you learn just by doing, but having the access to do it is the problem. And I think film school, especially I thought one of Columbia's greatest strengths was that they, every weekend you could be on a set every weekend if you wanted to, Hmm. the equipment was there for you to use. There's the resources and there was a bunch of kids who were stoked to do it. And Chicago as a city, there's a bunch of film stuff that happens there, but it's much more, it's people that like want to, they're like excited to be involved. So getting a permit to shoot in the park isn't a thing. You can take your, I mean, it is now and it is then, but you could get away with it because it was sort of like, Hey, look at those, look at those kids making their movie. Mm-hmm. And you could you borrow, you know, we shot in someone's bar before they opened. Cause they were like, that sounds awesome. Go ahead and do that. 
So it's, it's kind of cool mentality around that in Chicago specifically. But I don't know, film school, that question's so tough because I had such a great experience with film school and the people I met and the connections because it's such a networking thing. I think the networking is the biggest thing you take from film school. All my jobs when I moved to LA, when I started, were, were people that I had gone to school with or went to the same school. And because of that, they'd be like, oh, come work on this. And that sort of spirals things. So I, I can't mm-hmm. give a clear if it's worth it answer to things because I think it is like a personal thing. But I had a great time with it, though the the looming debt still hangs <laughs> over. So <laughs> if yeah. I could take that and make a movie, that would maybe be good. It would have been an awful movie, but it's the it's tough. I don't know. <laughs> um, you mentioned you know wanting to have lived in more than one place by the time that you arrived in like the heart of the industry. Was that in some ways because you wanted to like experience more of the country and like experience more of the world? Did you see that as like something that you needed to do in order to make your art better? Or was that just like a personal life kind of lifestyle thing? I think kind of both. My, my, my mom, my dad was, um, was sort of born and raised in the chunk of, of Oklahoma we were from and spent some time in like Arkansas. So we had a pretty limited, base of movement and like experience to the world and my mom her parents moved all over the place she moved so Mm -hmm. many times and she talked a lot about sort of the experiences she had so i had this kind of idea in my head that the more places you live sort of the the more you get to learn because you experience it you can talk about it and read about it and watch about it but living there is like this really unique um privilege to sort of embrace in that and so that was Mm -hmm. I mean, finding like film culture in Chicago with like the music box, I was like, this type of thing exists. Or like there's little places which the names are escaping me, but it's like 50, it's like 50 chairs in a room with a projector and like 50 weirdos all show up to watch this thing, this documentary that someone made and like that exists and that happens and like people Mm -hmm. buy tickets to it. I think it was that I wanted to find those little circles of stuff Cause I guess there's like the, you know, you read these books that you're assigned in school and they're like, you got to travel the world. You got to learn these experiences define you. And I was like, well, I need that. I'm not going (laughs) to find that in my hometown. And so what was your reaction to Chicago beyond just the school part of it? Like what, what what was, excuse me, what was your impression? I love, I love Chicago from the second we drove to Chicago. My friends and I road trip to Chicago Mm -hmm. um, to visit it. They came with me. And the second you hit, a ch- I don't know what chunk of the highway it is, because um, we were like 17 or 18, but that chunk of the highway you hit where you see the skyline for the first time uh-huh. was like nothing. I was like, what? what is this? This place. And that feeling, I don't know, the living, you know, the dorms for for Columbia were in the loop, which is a weird space, but like felt like I was like, oh, I'm in the city. Like, I'm this little guy made it to the city. And then... You're, like the, my first apartment was out in like Wicker Park, Ukrainian Village, and it just felt like a whole different world. And sort of learning each neighborhood had its own vibe and its own like kind of culture around it and the food and the bars and stuff were all different. Um, and I know you wrap nostalgia and like these moments because college is such a cool, was such a cool experience for me. So I probably wrap a lot of the emotion up of it, but I, I still, like Chicago is the coolest city. I adore Chicago mm-hmm. um, outside of the like punishing, punishing winters. <laughs> Which we, you and I, got screwed by. We had some two real bad major, ones. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it's such a unique thing. Having spent a lot of time in in other cities now, Chicago's is really is this interesting. I mean, they're all standalone, but Chicago feels like this very special little. It's it's both gigantic, but also feels really accessible. 
um, mm-hmm. in its in its scope in a way that New York and L.A. can kind of overwhelm. Chicago feels like this perfectly sized piece of urban city lifestyle. And I miss it. I, I, I love that place. Thinking about, you mentioned earlier that screenwriting was really something that kicked in once you came to school. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I'm going to sort of re- use that to reiterate another question. It's like, once you started writing, what kind of stuff was like really appealing to you to in terms of like, who were you learning from in terms of uh, how to write, what to write, et cetera? Like, where was your tastes leading you along that uh, that particular skill set? Um, when I sort of, when I was becoming more and more like aware of, of writing, I guess, um, I was very obsessed with the Coen brothers and a lot of South Korean cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Coens especially, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but it was it was these people who sort of voice... Their voice was always present in their work, but they were not defined by a genre. They defined, their story became the genre it needed to be. And I liked that because I think a lot of people wanted to know, like, what type of movies do you make? As -hmm. if there's an answer, which I'm sure as musicians is frustrating because you're like, what type of music you rate? And you're like, well, I don't want to be just the genre. There's so much, there's so much that the genre I'm working in offers that I can utilize to create this art. But defining it that way always kind of made me, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Like, let me, let me explain it this way um i think i always was sort of taken by that and their characterization but also just their sort of because i you know you have oh brother where art thou which is a movie i was obsessed with that's this sort of comedic epic read uh sort of restructured to become this new take on things uh and then you have no country for old men that's this like bone dry thriller that's mm-hmm. doing all these different things but they both feel distinctly like they're creators um and then it really worked out because i was, was a champion of of um park chan wook and bong jun ho uh with the host i think mother had come out right before we went to to college it was like oh oh nine maybe mother yeah was, or yeah and i was just obsessed with the stories that were being told the stories but also the way that they're being told because it felt so much less like well what if what if we tell you as little as possible in exposition so much more about this visceral and sort of you have to be in their mindset type of storytelling, mm-hmm. which is such an interesting thing to write because I can sort of let my my ramblings come out in description and then figure out how that works for me visually. And that was working really well because it was an excuse to not have to write. I was like, oh, I'll figure this out later <laughs> as I did it. But I was really taken with with those. I think a lot about them being sort of my writing Bibles as a, as a high schooler into college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about the um, the difference between writing for yourself and the, the leeway that that gives you versus mm-hmm. like writing a script for someone else's project. Was it, Were you always like thinking I, I'm was it always the former that was at the forefront of your mind or were you trying to get to a point where you could potentially do either one? Yeah, it's it's two it's two very different schools of thought. I only wrote for myself. I didn't know any better. And it was only in film school that we were sort of taught the logistics of well, here's how you write for other people because it is your voice, but it's also, you know, you're collaborating with the director now. So you can't just make all the decisions mm-hmm. and things. And um, I I wrote some stuff that other people directed in, in at Columbia and would do some script doctoring, like punch ups for stuff, which is a really interesting thing because you sort of are coming in. When you come into someone else's project, you have to sort of adapt their voice into yours so it doesn't stand out, but mm-hmm. still offer an expansion in the capacity they've asked for. But I still mostly write for myself. And then if something gets, like if someone wanted to 
take something I had done, I think I would probably revisit it to make it a more a more friendly thing for them to put their own their own identity on. Because I think I, I write mm. pretty heavily as if this is going to be in my brain. Right, right. So I feel like someone could walk away from someone who has put themselves in the chairs of both like writer and director mm-hmm. and maybe have, uh, I think there are some cliche ideas about like control freak, megamaniacal, you know, doing it all themselves, autorist sort of thing. But you've mentioned that like collaboration is also something that really appeals to you. Do you find like, what's your balance in terms of wanting to have control over the thing that you're making versus like letting other people into it? I think you, I think for me, I just slowly realized uh, by saying no to things when I would come back to, you know, when you're in the process of writing or in the process of shooting, saying no to suggestions is sometimes the right move. But oftentimes I'd come back to things as we were completed and being like, oh, that would have, they were right. That would have been better if I had done it this way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think you gradually build, hopefully build an open mindedness to it. Because I think film is really unique as being a collaborative art form because you get it's, it's, it's visual, but it's also it can be audio and it's, you know, special effects. It's all these technical fields sort of amalgamated into the single project. So for me, um, learning to, I mean, why bring on a, a, why bring on a cinematographer if you're not going to utilize their strengths and their sort of expertise in that field? I think you want to, you want to present your idea and be, be confident behind it, but also be down to have conversations that could maybe, because there's stuff that you sort of get caught up in, I think, at least I do, uh, stuff I get caught up in that I'm not, I some overlook, whether mm-hmm. it's in character, or whether it's in the way something's covered or the way something's editing. And film, it's it's a, it's a, it's a joke at this point, but it really does just keep getting rewritten. You write something, the thing you write is not the finished product because you sort of... Mm-hmm it relives and as you make it and then as you start to edit it, it relives because you have you know these very talented editors whose brains work with, well, the, the flow of it works better this way. And then, you know, the music is another rewrite because now everything you have is suddenly swelled with this new emotion because there's like a score behind it. And so it's very, I don't know, it's, you sort of get all these little like resets that feel kind of incredible because you're like, whoa, this was better than what I thought because now this is involved. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, the, I think being forced into collaboration for me in school was so great because it really taught like, Oh, these people are very good. I want to be good at everything, but in reality you can't do that all on set. I can't do this and this because my brain cannot be split that way. I need to have someone else doing that for me. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like I could see someone who is maybe too protective of their original idea Mm -hmm. Uh, describing that process that you just uh, you illustrated of like the constant renewal of it as like almost like a dilution over time like they had this one original interesting idea and then oh god it's just getting like further and further degraded but I think you're right that like that's one thing I've always envied about film is instead it's like it's going to change no matter what and so you should Mm -hmm. just sort of like slide into the ability for this thing that you had a very small like seed of an idea for growing up into something that you could never have done yourself. Yeah. There are some very talented filmmakers who I think exist in this plane of, of being sort of the sort of everything they say is what is what is. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're pretty vocal about the control that they want. But for me, I I think the collaboration is so much the excitement of the creation that I, I strive for, for that. 
And I still want to retain my stuff. It took me a long time to co-write things with people. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, this is such an interesting way to, you really learn your strengths and weaknesses or just ways that you don't think about writing. Um, How but, does co-writing work? Do you like split it up scene by scene? Do you do just do like trading drafts back and forth? I've always been curious about yeah, that. Yeah, we it kind of depends. Sometimes I've approached co-writing. I've only co-written a few things. My my short film that will come out probably early next year is, is a co-writing effort. And it was a story that I had had and a script I had written and then wanted to rewrite with a different, I needed to find someone else's voice to include in it. And so I approached with the general story, but then we rewrote the script together without having her view the original script. And he sort of did it. He would kind of come up with ideas and scenes and then sort of work together. You'd talk out conversations and dialogue and then fill in little details that you need. Mm-hmm. And on occasion we would trade drafts because we couldn't get together all the time. So I would get an email that she'd be like, hey, I, I rewrote this section of this. Tell me what you think. And then we'd keep the old version so you could always kind of see where you're coming from. But a lot of it's in the room. I'm a big visual person, so I like note cards and seeing sort of how things lay out. So if I want to slot something out, I can move it. And it was it was really interesting because it's someone challenging you on things. Then your brain, you're like, well, this is the only thing that's right. But <laughs> everything they say, you're like, that makes sense. And once you get over sort of the ego of it, you're like, oh, this is actually really great because you've mm-hmm. So I've, my brain has now worked in a different direction than it would have in a very positive way, especially for like character and situation. Um, so when we first met in Chicago, uh, we didn't meet doing collaboration in film, but we were collaborating in music. Uh, yes. So I feel like I should ask you what your experience is as a musician as well. Like, how did you start playing? I uh, was sort of forced into playing piano as a kid and played for, I think, seven years and loved mm-hmm. it. I didn't love practicing. If my mom ever listens to this, she'd be like, you didn't like to practice. I'm like, no, true. Um, (laughs) And then in middle school, high school, I played in bands with friends that were awful, but like beautiful at the same time. Like we weren't playing. We we would play like pizza places in Chicago, in uh, Tulsa. Uh It was great. What kind Um, of uh, beautiful, awful high school music were you playing? Just like we loved the Smashing Pumpkins and we loved Weezer. And... Uh Uh, so it was like trying to find a balance of, and like kind of misunderstanding both. Like we wanted like this grungier kind of garage rock sound, but like with the sort of on the nose lyrics of what I thought was the songwriting and be like, Oh, we, you know, we, we make, we talk about nerdy stuff. Um, it was great. I, we, yeah, it was great. Mm -hmm. Um, It was never like any sort of serious intention of like playing out or anything. No, no I, I loved it. But again, it was all about, I was never like the, I never wanted to be the front man. I always wanted to be like the supporting thing. Cause I just love to see, there was like this, almost this addiction to, again, like the collaboration of like mm-hmm. seeing your friends ideas succeed, uh-huh. which I think just fed into when we all got together in college and played with um, Sharpless. Uh, it was like seeing, I mean, you guys, the rest of the band was filled out with, with musicians, very talented musicians and, I just felt like this, I was like, can't believe I get to be a part of this. And also just bringing it sort of the practice and hearing like the finished product of the recordings that we would adapt to play live and the live performances, which always felt like a fever dream. Like, can't believe this is working. <laughs> live music is is wild to me. Like I have played in it, but I don't understand it still. Like seeing <laughs> seeing people perform in that cohesive manner, always different every night, but always in like, a type of sync that you just sort of vibe into, I cannot comprehend. <laughs> and so I, I, this is all leading, of course, to the, the subject of, of today's interview, which mm. is the music videos. So 
growing up, were you like a big music video person? Did that like cover both grounds in terms of being interested in both music? Yeah, and my film? my friends who got me into who sort of got me into music beyond my my taste outside of like piano and uh, Christian rock music mm-hmm. was. Uh, the ones I would play in bands with there when I'd say at their house, their, their dad was really big into music and just VH1 or MTV was just on all the time. Right. It was either CDs playing and like one of those giant hundred CD changers that just music always shuffling uh, or VH1 music videos. And I was obsessed with music videos because for that same thing, I was like, Oh, this is, they get to make a thing for this other thing that they love. And I mean, there, I think a lot about like, Smashing Pumpkins had some incredible music videos. When I think back at that time, like Switchfoot's Meant to Live played every 10 seconds. <laughs> Great music video. There was Blink-182's I Miss You, which was like me starting to understand like the idea of like paying tribute to something where I was like, wait a second, they're talking about a nightmare or the nightmare before Christmas. Uh-huh. They can just do that in this thing unrelated to it. And so we, yeah, the, I don't, music videos were such a cool thing because they seemed like a very accessible way in because it wasn't a two-hour movie. It was this three-minute little weird thing. Mm-hmm. Did you ever end up like making any for your friends or anything like that? Yes. I, yeah, yeah. Yes, I did. They they exist on some hard drive somewhere and they should stay there. <laughs> but I didn't really understand. Like Some of them were a lot of them would be like story based. Like it was like basically just made a movie as an excuse to put a song over it. Uh huh. Yeah. And then occasionally do like live performance ones, which are very funny back then. Cause it's just coverage of live performance without any form or function. So it's just a very long home video that has some cuts in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really understand sort of the, the music videos are so interesting because every director that sort of gets one does a completely different thing. You take, give the same person, give 10 people the same song and it's going to be this different beast. And that's such a cool, that's, I guess that's with any script or anything with that, but with music videos, because they feel accessible, it, it's such an interesting thing. Cause it is every video. I mean, you look at uh, a film or a, a musician's filmography of their music video work. And it is this, unless they work with the same person, it feels like this expansive, wildly different. You have no idea what you're going to get. Right. It almost, it looks more like, looking at an actor's IMDb than a director's yeah. IMDb. And I, I, I loved, um, there was, I think it was a death cab album. Death cab for cutie album had like a visual companion that had like every song had a music video mm-hmm. and I think TV on the radio put out one that was similar. Just like basically every song would have a video. And I was obsessed with that idea. I was like, what a crazy concept. Like you get an album you can listen to in your car and you get it. You can watch it on your TV and it's weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that like I remember the term like visual album kind of blowing yeah. up in the middle part of the last decade. But there were a lot of people before that kind of messing around yeah. with that idea. Uh, would you ever want to do that for someone? Is that like something that you'd like to put on your your goal list? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it would be very, especially if if each thing got to feel distinct, but sort of mm-hmm. had the same type of creative team behind it. I used to be obsessed. I loved concept albums. So like the Decemberist had concept albums and like... Um, Were you a Coheed person? Loved Co... Oh my gosh, Coheed was a dream for that. It was just like a date. I, I call them daydream albums because I would just sit and imagine what I would create to it. Uh-huh. Uh, and the same with, um, I'm blanking on Mastodon. 
Mastodon oh, yeah. stuff like like Leviathan was an album that I'd be like, just imagine. I mean, it's based on the thing it exists, but I was like, just imagine if you could make something <laughs> that um, felt like this and looked the way this yeah, sounds. Yeah, it just fed the visceral part of my brain in all the right ways. Where I was like, I cannot believe they have taken something that lives visually and created a musical thing to it that is is projecting in my my head. It's mm-hmm. so cool. Do you listen to music when you write? I do. Uh, I am a I'm a playlist person, and I like to I create playlist based on. It sounds very pretentious, but I create playlist based on character and sort of the mood uh-huh. to sort of get me in a in a groove. But it has to be music that I know because my my little ADHD brain. If I don't know the song, it it really tries to find you should know the lyrics daniel like you you need to you don't know this thing so i need to be able to subconsciously be humming it or singing it without realizing it while i write or otherwise i get bogged down so i do like a lot of i like a lot of jazz when i write and a lot of like lo-fi stuff but i really build stuff around just because like it sort of puts me in a headspace i think i find a lot of empathy in music because music's something that i can't like I have no idea how to write a review for music. It's just an emotional experience for me. Mm-hmm. So I try to find the things that I'm trying to match in character, which I think is very cool because it also opens me up to a lot of new music that I then have to spend a lot of time with because I need to know the music before I can write to it. Otherwise, my brain says no. Oh, that's interesting. Like, do you have any good examples like recently that you've had to like music that you've gone out of your way to look for in order to write to it? Um, yeah, the the current my current obsessions actually stem from diving into uh, like the the indie singer-songwriter world of people like Julian Baker, Lucy Dacus, Phoebe Bridgers, sort of started in like 2017, 2018, when I was trying to write Apartment Story and find mm-hmm. a perspective of like sort of this almost, it felt like people reading you their diary. It felt like you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be allowed to be listening to it. It felt like people reading you their diary and having conversations with you that felt so intimate and I wanted to sort of capture that because I think the people you in in real life and in like personal life, I feel like there's only a few people you talk to that way. So musicians mm-hmm. who can express that musicians able to express that type of thing freak me out because it's so it just feels so it's that thing where you're like, I, I feel like I know you. I don't know them at all, but mm-hmm. I feel like I do because you sort of let me experience this art that you've created. And so I dived into that and then I've sort of been obsessed with that ever since just because it felt like. I don't know. It felt it felt like a close friend sharing, um, and sort of like a, a parasocial intimacy kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, and I think a lot of our a lot of our mutual friends do the same thing. Where it, the benefit of knowing them, I mean, sort of this like there's like this um, the privilege of knowing them still lets me separate the stuff they create because there's conversations about stuff I'll listen to when our friends put out stuff that I've never had that conversation with them. But I can imagine the bar situation where I'm being told this information in music <laughs> form. So it feels like a greeting card of like, hey, here's how my life's been. Uh, mm. Even if it's slightly fictionalized, it's like this weird sort of, uh, it, I don't know. I always say that music feels like a privilege because it seems like something you shouldn't have access to in the mm. way that artists will sometimes share. So before we, uh, you did just give me a very good transition to talking about the mutual friend who uh, you just made a, a music vi- video for, which as of the day of this recording has just come out. But uh, do you have like a moment to talk about apartment story as well? Or is that still uh, out of the public eye? Sure. I, so I, I actually wrote, I had a foundation for apartment story back in Chicago. 
I like to make movie. I like to make one movie in every apartment I live in. I think that's uh, kind of a cool little time capsule for me. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea that because I, I was I had to, it was the first time with roommates and my roommates cycled and there were a lot of um, new loves and heartbreaks throughout that apartment. I thought it was so interesting. And so I had this kind of idea of what if you could, I'd love to see like relationships that take place, but how they're sort of defined in each area of a, an apartment. Mm-hmm. Cause I noticed weird things like when we have a party, our group used to always end up in the kitchen. I don't know what it was about kitchens, but we'd end up with a, a talking circle in a kitchen, whether yeah. it was our kitchen, it's just the kitchen. I don't know what the kitchen was comforting. And so I sort of, apartment story has this idea of it's a relationship from start to finish and it resets every time it moves rooms. So the first section is the kitchen, which is sort of a bad. It's like this very inviting thing. And it's there's like an intimacy to it. You know, you're cooking together. You're cooking for someone. It's sort of this exploration of that. And there's the table, which a lot of great conversations have at. And then it's the living room, which is sort of a, a bigger social space, but also like a comfier space or closer on the couch. You sort of, there's a physicality to it. And then the third segment's in the bathroom, which I think is an undervalued section of an apartment because there's great conversations happen in the bathroom between friends and and partners Mm -hmm. um speaking of that kind of like intimacy of being led into stuff that you typically don't imagine yeah led into the bathroom is like the perfect venue for that kind of thing and it it becomes a space even with friends at a certain point like in in chicago we had one bathroom so there was overlap people had to get to class so someone's showering someone needs to brush their teeth there's Mm -hmm. one bathroom what can we do uh, and it's not, it, it becomes a thing where you don't need to think about it. That's just the norm. You sort of, Hey, can I come in? Yeah, go for it. That type of thing. Um, and then the final segment is, uh, the bedroom, which is a, a dialogueless section that is all told from sleeping arrangements, which is another thing I found really interesting talking to people. Conversations would come up about like, Oh, how you sleep, especially with a partner. Like, do you, are you, are you cuddled? Like I, I'm a furnace, so I just radiate heat and my dog sleeps with my wife and I. So like I need spread, I need less sheets and I need a fan blowing straight on me. And it has nothing to do with the actual relationship, but there is, you can sort of tell in body language with the way that you sort of do. I thought that was an interesting thing to speak of. And so the story plays out over those four areas. Um, and so you sort of start and the relationship starts and ends and then we reset and we see it sort of from the beginning to the end in each room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it all comes to a climax with another mutual friend's song that I found, uh, Gabby's World's The Thunder Answered Back, that sort of had this vibe I wanted to capture of this the intensity that it sort of builds to into like this very slow spread out of, of something that is beginning and ending. Mm-hmm. And it's we're getting there. It's 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 picture locked, and I've color graded it. Uh, it's in black and white, so it's just been graded. But we're working. I'm working with a composer to sort of get that final thing down, and then we'll be we'll hit festivals. We've got some interest from some stuff already, but we'll hit festivals probably early next year, so I can start to share it with people. Which part of the process of making it was the most difficult, and which part was your favorite to do? Production is is always difficult, just because you never know. Production is always difficult because you, you never know the situations you're going to run into. For this, we were shooting on weekends. Everyone's working full-time jobs. There's very little money, um, but you want to pay people because they're working for you. And so you try, you try to accommodate that when you can. Um, and it presents interesting stuff. We're shooting in my apartment to save money and to kind of capture the apartment. But that limits how I can get certain types of gear in to get the shots that I want. Uh, I can't afford to hire a DP, so I'm the DP as well. Stuff like that, I think, sort of dictates a lot of that. Um, but the part that I, 
the hard part, I think, came in editing because I initially had penned it as a four-part miniseries, each each about 10 to 15 to 20 minutes, like pretty beefy chunks. Mm-hmm. And when the pandemic hit, the four parts, we sort of were going over them because we had plenty of time. My editor is one of my best friends. He actually lives literally next door. And we would sort of get together and work on it. And we sort of realized that it worked better as a single unit. And that single unit became this hour, hour 10 long thing that became 40 minutes. Then it became 30 minutes. And there's sort of the sweet spot at like 28 that I was like, this feels the best. Mm-hmm. Like there's an expanded, my Lord of the Rings expanded edition brain says more. But part of me is like, this is the most concise thing. And it it helps. You don't really lose. Because I think some of it in relationship stuff, moving from room to room, you feel like it's a little bit of a retread. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, and so I, I sort of cutting it down was took a lot longer than I thought. It's really interesting because it broke down this like, oh, no, I have this huge thing we filmed that we did all the work to film. And how are we going to cut out 40 minutes of it? And I think it's so much better because someone challenged me to be like, hey, I think your your thing is so much stronger if you let it be this short, shorter thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there's the cooking spinach kind of element, yeah. you know, and it's all good for you at the end. <laughs> yeah. And and composition is insanely hard. I, I have a pretty musical brain, even though I can't write music and working with composers. I don't like to use temp tracks because I get I fall in love with the with the temp track. Totally. Yeah. So I, I like to make mood boards for for composers I'm working with to sort of capture a thing and finding that right sound is kind of difficult. But then once it's there, watching a, their magic work is kind of insane. Like mm-hmm. their output when they're like, oh, I get what you're saying. I'll talk to you in a few days. And they come back with something and you're like, well, how did you, how did you do this? I don't get it. I have so much respect for it. It does not make sense to me. <laughs> we will never reveal our secrets. Uh, I don't think I want to. I think I like, I like, I like the, I was going to say David Blaine, but that seems not the way to describe it. I like the, uh, illusion freak. Aspect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Speaking of music and working with our friends, you you know we just put out this music video for the new Bellows uh, album uh, called McNally Jackson. How did you first get involved with that, and what was the your process for dreaming that one up? Uh, I have been talking to Oliver, the the singer songwriter of Bellows, for we've been friends for a long time, uh, and I I expressed interest in making something with him, and I think we'd actually we talked. We had talked previously about some songs that didn't end up coming to fruition, I believe. Hmm. And so he reached out earlier this year about this concept of like, hey, could we, if the pandemic sort of allows for it, could we, would you have any interest in shooting a video? Maybe when I come to LA for tour, well, the pandemic kept raging on. Well, maybe, are you going to be in LA for anything? And sort of figured out a way to like make it happen. And in talking to him, I wanted to find a way to work in a way I hadn't worked, which is I'm, I'm very, I'm a huge prep person. I want a storyboard. I want to have everything I'm going to do laid out in front of me. And Oliver presented an interesting idea of like, we'll find a theme. We'll sort of find the mood and the theme and these, we'll sort of build these things for it, but then kind of let things flow, mm-hmm. which is scary to me because that is, that is chaos to me. Like, oh, we'll find, we're going to shoot all this stuff and then find it. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. But I was like, let's do, actually, this is a good, this is a challenge. We'll do it. Because we had sort of talked about our likes and our dislikes in music videos and watched so many music videos and we're sharing them back and forth. Um, What kind of stuff were you sending each other? Everything. Like I love, there's like this great, it was, for me, it's like a lot of moments. Like this is great. This is great. um, Do a leap of music video. 
Dua Lipa has a great stretch of music videos, by the way. Great musician. Uh, she has a song, I think it's called Break My Heart, and it has this incredible like dance sequence that's every every beat sort of cut to this dance uh, within the song beats. There's always a cut. Mm-hmm. And it just has like this great energy to it. And so Oliver and I talked a lot about finding music that has an energy to match. Because I think that we a lot of music videos disguise a lack of content with a ton of edits. Yes. And so I was like, maybe yeah. we can combine that by making that part of the joke is that we keep cutting to things that are the same. It's the same location, but like different camera angles as if, but rather than just like cutting, you know, we, we would basically shoot a ton of the same stuff to have multiple takes of things. And we exchanged a bunch of emails and went over like the concepts of, of sort of these like sets we were going to, he was going to build with, um, some other some other artist to to make come alive and then we'd sort of find on the day the mood but the idea being that as the song progresses it's sort of this like one man show this performance by one man that eventually literally strips off to become the collaborative i've I realized i keep coming back to the collaborative the word collaborative but the collaborative experience of like what defines like here is someone he's the he's the the front man he has put in the work he's written these lyrics but to create the final product, you have to work with a lot of people. And so sort of it all builds to like this, this absurdity. And then we're together with the people who like let him make this. He is leading them, but it is this crew of people that have made it happen. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of, and I, I, I'm not bashing it by any means, but I think a lot of, a lot of bands are sort of the, the front man and they, they lead the, uh, they lead the charge or especially bands that have people that come in and the lineups always shift. But I was really curious about the idea of I like to have a little moment that acknowledges like, hey, a lot of people helped and then a little wink. Mm-hmm. And plus, it's also like uh, selfishly, I was like, I want to have a bunch of my friends in it because it's this is a cool experience of people making great things and having these great little successes and get to include them all in, in my own thing, I guess. So that like broader structural, like kind of dual structure of having like the first chunk being solo and then ending with like the climax of the collaborative band. Yeah. Thing. That was like your, your roadmap and then everything else in between yeah. was kind of figuring it out. And from like a budget perspective, we were like, okay, if we can shoot this, Oliver's, we can shoot this at my parents' house. They have all these great spaces that would kind of allow it. And I think it's a little bit, I'm a little bit nostalgic for that idea. Like we now have, like we've captured like this space that is Oliver's, that it's important to him as mm-hmm. a human. And we sort of, dressed it up to be like the opening, the white sheets with all the taxidermy animals is the same location that the final band shot takes place in, which is not super clear and it's not meant to be clear, but I, I like the little things like that. And like the bathroom is right behind that location. It's like all these sort of, how can we use this? <clears throat> how can we utilize this little space we have to make something continually visually interesting and feel a little bit goofy? I wanted to kind of feel like, and in, in talking with Oliver, I wanted to kind of feel like a, more professional version of a thing I would have made with my friends when we were 16. Yes. Which yeah, is yeah. a lot of dress up, a lot of like, Hey, my, you know, my, my mom has this funny hat I can wear except Oliver's like, Oh, my mom's this incredible painter. We can utilize her paint stuff. My, you know, Felix's uh, sibling is this incredible taxidermist and we have access to all these other types of art. We can combine them, but I want, I want that ultimately to feel like a, higher production value version of something I would have made when I was 16 with my friends. And I think that was the kind of the goal. Yeah. I think that that's, um, I would have to get Oliver's take on it. 
but I feel like this album in general sort of feels like a bit of a return to that kind of like naive bringing every the band together kind of energy like mm-hmm. i know that the the previous bellows records were much more like built one person outward whereas mm-hmm. this one he he brought a lot more people in and we were like spent a lot more time like jamming the songs out before we recorded them so yeah. it makes sense that there would also be this kind of like cool uh yeah i think back to like those early youtube days where you know we would all get together and just like make these completely nonsensical yeah, it's the best. That shit comedy videos that like yeah. no one would enjoy, but capturing that sort of like ramshackle uh, gung-ho spirit, I think it's palpable in the video for sure. You, and you lose that. I think the older we get, we like lose the ability. We can't not think critically, so we sort of lose the ability to just make. Mm-hmm. So it's it's nice to to, to, cha- to channel that in. There was no, every everything was ultimately thought out because we can't work that way anymore, but it felt... It felt like that a little bit. Mm-hmm. How much of the, like, did you dig into the lyrics as like a point of inspiration or a guiding light? Uh, I really did. I, I I looked to the music. I looked to the, the composition in terms of the energy I wanted to sort of convey. Mm-hmm. A lot of that mostly falling in the edit, who my editor, Michael Masterson, uh, has such a knack for. But I, I wanted to not, I think Oliver didn't want to approach it as a lyrical piece to the visuals. Um, mm-hmm. That's something I think I initially would have pitched for was to try and find a story that existed as sort of a companion piece. But he, I think, wanted it more of, and I agreed with him as a challenge to be this sort of standalone thing that is, the, the energy is captured in the visuals, but the song is is conveying something different uh, to a degree. At least that's what I, I sort of thought as we were making it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that something like you, you've mentioned a few times now that this video was a you were kind of leaning into the challenging or fresher or newer parts of it um, that were maybe challenging your previous conceptions about like what you wanted to do. How mm-hmm. far how much do you try to like seek out projects that will allow you to do that? It's something I think it's it's kind of a newer thing uh, because I make it takes me a long, I'm not a, a quantity person. I, it takes me a long time to make something mm-hmm. and I kind of juggle multiple things that sort of overlap. This just makes everything take longer. So it was exciting. The, the speed again, deadlines were great for me. So the speed with which it needed to be done and thought of and collaborating with someone beyond just Oliver being a very talented artist, but also someone who had like a very, like he had a, a very clear idea of what he wanted um, visually. So it was sort of pitch. It almost felt like making someone else's script, which I've never done outside of school. Uh, and I liked that idea. It was, here's, here's this, here's like this concept. How do I make it mine, but also sharing it with, with, with Oliver's vision. I thought that was really exciting. And I think that's kind of a cool vibe to music videos. Of, uh, I think musicians have these great ideas that they want to accomplish and you sort of get to work together to create it together. Mm-hmm. Where it doesn't feel like either person's singular thing, it feels like an amalgamation uh, of their collective visions. I, I guess I was asking less specifically about the video and more about like, do you seek stuff out or do you try to find like on your own time when you're working on new creative projects? How much are you seeking out like things that are challenging to you versus things that are perhaps closer to your skill set and comfort zone? I think I always look to challenge to challenging things. I try to, I like new projects because it usually spirals me into a, a section of trying to find 
films and music and music videos of, of things that are not my normal cup of tea. Cause I, I sort mm-hmm. of want to leave I feel like every, and I can't, I can only speak to my knowledge of things, but every, I love to follow like musicians. All of their albums have this progression where they sort of add stuff and they become, there's these sounds that kind of become theirs. And in the same way that that sort of naturally happens, I want every film to feel like it's an upgrade, not in terms of quality, but there's something new at work here. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because I don't want to just keep making the same thing. So I think I do try to find things that challenge my ideas of what, what I'm a, what I'm capable of, but B also like what I think my arsenal is. Cause I think it's very easy to, or not easy, but it's, you want to, I want to learn something new to come out of it to feel like I've made, I have upgraded myself to a degree. It, yeah. I, over the course of this conversation, and I just know this about both of us. Uh, we have, we're both like a very much like no input, no output kind of people. Like we take in a lot of stuff mm-hmm. in order to make the stuff that we make. Um, do you ever find like a balance, like trouble with that balance of like, oh, I need to like do more research or I need to like dig more into, you know, these kinds of movies. I Like the desire to uh, consume more art versus creating it. I feel like there could be, I, I only ask because I know that I go through some similar <laughs> self-doubt. No, I do, I do that very bad. And I do it as a technique to not make stuff. <laughs> where I can like delay because I'm like, well, I need to spend more time learning about this. And so uh, I'll, I'll spend three months doing that and not touch the thing I'm working on. Mm-hmm. I'm very guilty of that. I'd like to think that it's in the end is, is valuable because I am, you know, researching or actively trying to seek out things to improve myself. But a lot of times it is a technique to rather than being like, I'm going to take a break for a week. I'm like, I am not going to think about this for three months and research things. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Very guilty. What have you been researching lately? Like what's been, uh, what's been on your watch list? Uh, I just came off of a big, uh, my wife and I make a like horror list for Halloween. We try to do like 31 movies. Um, I try to do 31 and uh, Rachel gives a lot of stuff she wants to see or stuff that's sort of on her, that has been on her um, stuff that she's missed that she'd like to go over. So we do a lot of horror stuff. Um, and this year I tried to do a lot of, of international horror films for things. Mm-hmm. Cause I think especially with access to what we have now, it's so interesting to see sort of what to find scary in different cultures. Uh, something that I might not find scary, but is like this really horrifying thing to other that, so a lot of horror things as we move into November, I, as a side note, I work, I help program and co-run a, a screening. I guess we have a movie theater now. So we, a movie theater in Los Angeles called Secret Movie Club. And so we, we try to tailor, we try to theme every month to different things that we're really into or sort of program series of things that we love. And this year, um, uh, Rainer Werner, Fassbender <laughs> had a brain fart. We, we've we've basically we'll end up doing like thirty of his movies this year, mm-hmm. like twenty five of them or something on film. And he, I had never seen a single of his of his films. And he made I think forty three movies or something before he passed away. He was very young too, like wow. in his thirties. But his output was insane, and his his he was just making stuff because it was speaking to him. And I, I really admire because I can't do that, that type of output with a quality control because it's just coming straight from internal. There is no, they're all independent. So there's no, he's not being told what to do. I'm sure he's collaborating with people, but, and he, you know, he made 
Berlin Alexander Platz, which is like 16 hours and just the insanity of the stuff. And there's a lot of like themes that run through his stuff, but they all feel really different. And I, that method of, of filmmaking and his, I'm obsessed with the way he moves his camera. So there's been very into him, his discography right now. And I'm trying to think if there's anything else I've been especially obsessed with. I went through a huge, in preparation for Edgar Wright's new movie, Last Night in Soho, I went through a big uh, giallo bender, a lot of like um, psychological thrillers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I wish I, I, I make a lot of, I make little film festivals for myself that have themes, but they, they're so, the sway from what type of mood it is is so jarring from week to week that there's not really a cohesion to it. Sometimes I just, I like to watch new things to, or things that I return to things that I love to try and find. Cause sometimes you hit something that's like, Oh, that sort of hits an inspiration thing. And I'm like, Oh, interesting. I should come back, whether it's a new project or something that I've been stuck on. I'm like, Oh, what if I kind of do this? So mm-hmm. I really just turn movies are sort of therapy in that regard. They sort of give so much in different things you don't always uh, account for. What was it like to sort of to come full circle? Um, particularly with secret movie club. What is, what was that like during COVID? Like how I'm, you know, it's incredible that you guys survived the whole thing. So I'm curious about like what your experience has been with it. Yeah. Our, our sob story is we open. So the way we operate in Los Angeles is we were running midnights and some weekend matinees out of the Vista theater uh, outside of Hollywood and Los Feliz. And we had had conversations and Craig who started it and is the head honcho. He, he wanted to open his own theater that, was a, a a theater sized that could accommodate that will not maybe not sell 400 tickets to a screening but might bring in 25 to 50 people for something that he loves or you know we love or stuff that just doesn't get screened that deserves mm-hmm. a chance to be seen and our hope being that if people sort of trust our us as a brand which is not the word I want to use but as a concept that maybe they'll come take a chance on stuff that they haven't seen um, and so we opened up a theater in the Arts District that's a 99-seat theater with 35-millimeter projectors, 16, and digital. And we get to show stuff like Fassbender. Thing. We have Fassbender Windows. We get, you know, we'll get some German beers and play a bunch of music and watch this these incredibly depressing little slice-of-life movies together. And we opened the theater, our theater, five weeks on February 1st. Mm-hmm. And then LA shut down, uh, I think March 13th or something. Mm-hmm. And so that was very jarring because a lease had been signed and we had months of programming planned with tickets sold Oof, and the yeah. world just stopped. So we shifted, we did some like digital, like Netflix party had come a thing. And we're like, oh, maybe we can do some like Netflix party with like a donation thing or whatever. And that, you know, we had some people that were coming to that, but it wasn't the same vibe. Uh, and so we partnered with a, a, a drive-in organization out here called Electric Dust Drive-In. And we started pr- programming with them. And we did drive-ins like three or four times a week in an, an old uh, abandoned Sears parking lot. And it was awesome because we would show everything from Pixar movies to Star Wars to we would we show like Maximum Overdrive. And we would show kind of just like a, you know, a little something for everyone. And it was a it was a it was a really nice success. I think people at the time when we did it, it was like July. I think we started June or July, so people were hungry to get out of the house. This was a safe way to do it. You weren't putting yourself or anyone else in danger. It was outside in the moments you needed to be out of your vehicle, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a cool 
experience. And that sort of helped us. We it then let us continue on as we pushed back to this year to prep to reopen. And we reopened in late May, early June. And we've, you know, with, with following all of the city guidelines, which change a lot and are frustrating because they're not always clear. And we want to make sure that they're very clear for our audience and safe for people. Mm-hmm. Um, we reopened our theater and then we partnered with another theater, which is a historic theater in downtown Los Angeles called the Million Dollar Theater, which is a 2000 seat monster that used to, that um, Sid Groman opened. It was his first theater and it cost a million dollars when it opened, which I have no concept what it costs now, but it seems Good like God. a steal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like this old, like 19, it was both like 1917 or something. But we have like, we have city volunteer conservatory historians come to like talk about it with people. We have 35 million projectors that we screen stuff on, on the old screen. And it's such a cool, I don't know. It's, we've come back, the rep scene in LA has come back very strong in a way that I was very worried it was all going to crumble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there was like similar conversations in New York of like what is going to be left mm-hmm. on at the other side of it, like what institutions will survive and which ones are going to get boarded yeah. up. And there was definitely, I think, a, a fear that like we would all reemerge and everything would be Chase Banks, you know? Yeah, it's I, I, I don't like the, the fight. There's you know, there's always the fight of like, the, you know, the theater experience versus the home experience. I think that they're distinct experiences, mm-hmm. but I don't like to dictate what is superior because I think it's a personal thing. It's a comfort thing. And also, like, if you're experiencing the art, then I'm hoping it's doing something for you regardless. Uh, and it can be a different experience. And I, I would but, hope that both options would be available to yeah, everyone. Yeah, exactly. Because you know? I think streaming is so easy and the access we have to everything is insane. But it also disappears. And that is scary and frustrating. And I also think the option to share for me, the community aspect of it, even if I go alone, there is a community aspect of it. And there's a presentation aspect to it that I crave in a theater. And we wanted that sort of the goal of secret movie club is screen great things, things that we love and things that are brought to us. Cause we screen stuff that we've never seen because we don't have time to see everything, but mm-hmm. we want to, we can't just live by our own taste. We have to expand and, you know, I think the aim is to work with people that, you know, I can go out and program whatever and say that I have X amount of knowledge about a thing, but bringing in people to have conversations about cultures and um, different groups that populate our city and are crave, they want to see themselves on screen. They want to see themselves represented and to talk about it. uh, Bringing them to do that is also this incredibly fulfilling thing because you get you see things that you've never heard of and you get to like experience. Uh, it's, it's very cool. I'm very like overwhelmed by what it is and what it's become and very grateful that it exists. Cause it's a thing I was go when I, it's a thing that I was going to before it became, when it was just a one man show once a week mm-hmm. that Craig, my, the owner was doing to being the thing we did together. And now a thing that we have like employees for, and it is five, six times a week. That's great. Just watching that growth is is awesome from an outside. I wish I was in LA to uh, enjoy the fruits of that growth. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. Speaking of having good conversations and learning about new stuff, thank you for coming on Land Informs Radio to have this conversation. This is uh, thank you. This, this is, is awesome so dope. To you. I have like this thing. I'm like, I've been listening to this. It's weird to it's weird to be on it. <laughs> That's uh well glad to fulfill that strange surreal dream for you <laughs> yeah thank you so much i meant that did you start this during the pandemic or was this um, before like shortly before yeah it really okay. kicked into high gear in the pandemic so it definitely was like did this did this feel like a 
it just seems like so Taylor set like a an intimate conversation, but it seems like a great like make it through the pandemic. That's how I felt listening to it. Around. Mm. Like, it sounds like you're just sort of sitting next to two people at a movie theater having like that conversation. Totally. Yeah. It was it's you know, I'm glad that you brought up like communication, collaboration and all that kind mm. of stuff. Because that's that's the point of this podcast is for me to maintain connections with people and get having this opportunity to like reach out across the country and stay in contact yeah. with all these other musicians and artists as like otherwise I would have went completely insane. So yeah. yeah. Well it's great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Okay. Talk to you later. See ya.